Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. It's rare that a man tries to kill his wife and then they live happily ever after. But that's what happened to a man who couldn't give up betting and his wife who suspected he was spiraling deeper into debt. Darling, what's happened to your tongue? Oh, I suppose you disapprove of my betting? No, not with 2,000 quid in her lap, she doesn't. Oh, come on, darling, smile. I know I've been naughty, but look, it's all for you. Ah, I see. That, that's Johnny. Go on, darling, smile. Johnny, where did you get the 200 pounds? The wife worried, not unreasonably, that her husband desperately needed her money and that he might do anything to get it. Marrying you is the one thing I've never changed my mind about. Do you really mean that, Johnny? Yes, I really mean that. I want nothing but to spend the rest of my life with you. And if you were to die first, I... If I were to die first. The man, as you may have guessed if you watch old movies, was Cary Grant. And his wife, at least in the 1941 film Suspicion, was Joan Fontaine. And that movie, says scholar William Flesh, tells us something intriguing about how our brains work. Cary Grant always, he was a great, great actor, and he always wanted to challenge himself. So Hitchcock in Suspicion decided to do a particularly cruel Hitchcockian twist, which is to make everyone suspicious that Cary Grant might be trying to poison his wife and then have that turn out to be true. The movie was based on a novel in which the husband kills the wife. But the problem for director Alfred Hitchcock was that his employers were having none of it. Even though, mind you, the movie portrays Grant as an endlessly crafty man with a lot to hide. He keeps doing these suspicious things and everyone around him, including her, everyone around him is getting more and more suspicious. And then in the original version of the movie, he the, the movie has a very, very famous shot of Cary Grant coming upstairs holding a glass of milk, which may or may not be poison. And in fact, Hitchcock did that shot with a light bulb in a glass painted white, so you can see it glowing on the screen as he's coming up the stairs. So in the original movie, it was poisoned. Good night, Lena. And he gives her the milk, and she drinks it, and she dies. And there's a little twist at the end, which is how Cary Grant gets gets caught. But it turns out, yes, he's a murderer. So Hitchcock showed this to a test audience, and they hated it, and the producers hated it. And what they basically said is, you had us suspicious all the way through that he was guilty, so of course we expected him to be innocent. After all, Flesh Notes, this was Cary Grant, one of the most beloved movie stars in Hollywood. Audiences believed in him. They loved him. They knew that despite all the misdirection, they could trust him. He wasn't someone who'd poison his wife. Flesh, who's a professor of English at Brandeis University and the author of the book Comeuppance, says we love fiction not necessarily because we identify with characters, which is what many have argued. We don't necessarily think we are Cary Grant but because we assess characters and we get really annoyed if others don't share our assessment. So that ending, um, in fact, was trashed. It doesn't exist anymore. It was shown to a test audience, and they really, really hated it. 
And so Hitchcock and the producers decided that they would have to redo the end of the movie. And what that meant was explaining every suspicious thing that Cary Grant had done throughout the movie. Of course, the, what, what makes it a good story is that Hitchcock was such a good storyteller that he found a way to very quickly give other reasons for everything that Cary Grant had done that turned out to make him a good guy rather than a bad guy. So there is a story where we really, where audiences, by we I mean the original audiences, really, really, really didn't want the person we trusted to turn out to be a bad guy. We really, really, really wanted the suspicion to be wrong. We really wanted the person who was suspicious to realize that she was wrong. And we really wanted him to forgive her once she realizes that she was wrong. And then they live happily ever after. Biologists and scholars of literature have thought for a long time about why we tell each other stories, why we get absorbed by them, why we feel fear or joy, even when we know that the people in front of us are just actors on the screen or pictures on a page. And there are a bunch of answers to why we tell stories. They can reflect our own lives. They can be storage containers for the histories or myths of certain groups or nations. But Flesh felt like that wasn't a good enough explanation for the question that he had. Why do we want characters to get what they deserve, both good guys and bad guys? Well, he says, it starts with a bet. There's a kind of pleasure like the pleasure of guessing the answer to a riddle if we, are, if we have better judgments than others, if our judgment is right and um, this other character who's so complacent and so full of himself and so sure that his cynical judgment is right if that person turns out to be wrong. Which was why ordinary people were heartbroken when they learned that their trust in Cary Grant had been misplaced. His overly suspicious wife was right. And it's why they changed the ending of the movie. Johnny, you mean you're going to... Johnny, why were you asking Isabel those questions about the poison? What were you planning to do with it? Johnny, you were going to kill yourself. My darling, my darling. Yes. Johnny, if I'd only known, this is as much my fault as yours. Flesh says agreeing on the bets that we make is important. Knowing who the good and bad people are... That holds a community together. If we can't agree on who's trying to swindle us and who's trying to help us, we're in for a world of hurt. What you have to do is have people who are watching out for liars. And even if the lie isn't something that is told against them, they have to um, want to, um, to punish or to unmask liars anyhow. And so... Everyone is always minding everyone else's business just because we feel we've evolved um, for really interesting reasons to really not like seeing someone cheating someone else. Even if we're not the one being cheated, if we see a cheater and if we see that a trusting person is losing to a cheater because that person is trusting the cheater too much, that gets our dander up. That means that we're looking to reward people who have a kernel of good inside them. And we like characters and fellow audience members who put wagers on heroes from Oliver Twist to Batman, even when much of the world can't see what we see in those heroes. We're looking to reward people with promise, just as we might in the real world. Promise that, at the very least, we and the author know is there. And the perfect movie for this is Casablanca. The fun 
fundamental things apply as time goes by. Where um, Rick, the Humphrey Bogart character in Casablanca, when they come to get me, Rick, I hope you'll be more of a help. Begins by saying, "I stick my neck out for nobody." I'm sorry there was a disturbance, folks, but it's all over now. Everything's all right. He's a bitter character, and he has reason to be bitter. And part of what we think about Rick or Humphrey Bogart, because he's Humphrey Bogart after all, is here is a really hard-boiled, charismatic person who really knows the world better than anyone else. And while he's not going to cheat anyone, that's part of what makes us like him from the start, is he doesn't cheat others. Um, he is also not going to stick his neck out for others because he's too cynical to think that anyone is worth sticking his neck out for. But even so, lots of us, either because there are flashes of good in Rick or because we like Humphrey Bogart and his charisma, make a bet on him. You yourself are showing that you are sustaining trust, that you have a kind of charisma yourself which is that you are sustaining your trust that Rick in the end will come through and do the right thing, which requires some self-sacrifice on his part. And the names are Mr. and Mrs. Victor Laszlo. But why my name, Richard? Because you're getting on that plane. I don't understand. What about you? I'm staying here with him until the plane gets safely away. No, Richard, no. What has happened to you last night? Last night we said a great many things. At the, in the case of Casablanca, it's a self-sacrifice of deciding what to do with the uh, letters of transit that he has, um, which is not to use them for himself. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. But that you are waiting and you have more faith than others in what Rick is going to do. But in a in a way, so they're kind of the people we're betting against when we bet on Rick or the people we're betting against when we bet on Oliver are the other characters in the movie or in the novel who don't think they're going to do the right thing. Um, but also the other members of the audience in our world who don't think that they're going to do the right thing. And the people we're betting on is we're betting on Rick or on Oliver, um, but we're also betting on those who think, let's say, other members of the audience, whether in the book or movie or in the theater with us, who think they will do the right thing. And ultimately, we're also betting on the storyteller. Right. One funny thing about fiction is that even though it kind of, you know, obviously bears a lot of similarities to real life, these things could happen in real life, mostly, probably not Batman, but um, is <laughs> <laughs> probably, I'm saying, um, yeah. is that there's this kind of strangely disempowering aspect of fiction. Like in real life, you could stand up and say, no, stop bothering that person, or no, this person is trustworthy, or, you know, you, presumably, you might be able to do something. But in fiction, you are behind the wall, and you have to watch people do things you know is are you, things you know are wrong and inappropriate and mean, and there's just nothing you can do about it. And I wonder how that factors in. In some ways, it seems like a little bit of torture, right, and, yeah. as opposed yeah. to reality. 
Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. You know, the the thing in reality that's most like that is waiting for the next election. Um, yes. But um, True. I, I, <laughs> I, um, I think that, that that's absolutely right. And I think that this is a case where what you're seeing is what art does in general, which is it takes an experience from life that is usually embedded in a whole complex entanglement of other experiences um, so that it's hard to have that to feel that experience in a pure way. And um, when you are watching a movie or a play or reading a book, it can't be entangled in various ways that you might be able to intervene. I have to say that I think sports is like that also. That, yes, it's, um, yeah, exactly. You're not on the field. You cannot help people. Yeah. You're disempowered, right? But, but I think sports is a little bit of an intermediary example because you can do the wave or you can cheer or you can yell. And even though it's doing almost nothing, you feel like <laughs> you're still participating a little bit. Huh. Um, but when you, you don't yell at plays – um, if you go see a play, whatever else you do, you don't start yelling at characters on stage. Right, right, right. You can yell at your TV, but it's partly that yelling at your TV, no one's hearing, no one can hear you yell when you scream at your TV. Right. Um, and so what we get instead is the experience of a very strong impulse to make something come out right, along with a sense that we have to entirely trust on what someone else is doing, but right. that trust isn't passive because right. we feel that um, we are, we're actually betting. We're not only trusting, but we're betting. And right. so we're putting our emotional money where our desire is. Um, we're giving this thing our attention because we're betting our attention. We're betting our emotion. We're betting how much we care on the idea that the person we trust will turn out or the author, the director, the character will turn out to be trustworthy. And as I say, we're, that bet is not only a private bet, um, but it's a bet against others. It's a bet right. against those who don't um, have as much faith as we do. Okay. And it's when we still hope against hope, even in that situation, that we're putting our own judgment, our own emotion, our own passion, our own sense of reality on the line. And then if we win that bet, we feel really, really vindicated. William Flesh is the author of the book Comeuppance and a professor of English literature at Brandeis University. William, thanks for being here. Well, thank you. It, it was a pleasure. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you, all that you can rely. On our Facebook page, we've got more on why we root for the underdog, both in real life and in fiction. That's all at Facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. And finally today, a postscript to a segment we aired a couple of weeks ago about the race to get ahead in math. When I grow up, I definitely want to be kind of an inventor, but also an aeronautical engineer. And the math that I'm learning now has a lot to apply to aeronautics, especially in the geometry part of it. That's 10-year-old Sebastian Sobe, one of a growing number of students studying at the Russian School of Mathematics. It offers extracurricular enrichment, and along with other after-school and weekend math programs, it has grown tremendously during the past several years. 
especially in affluent suburbs across the country. We heard positive things from a number of parents who have their kids in those kinds of programs, but we also got this comment via Twitter from Blair Banks. I wish there were more affordable options for math enrichment. My eight-year-old girl loves math, but the school discontinued math enrichment. She says that the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth that her daughter qualifies for is costly. If we want girls to stay in love with math, Banks says, we need to nurture that love. And while the race to get years ahead in math is the issue for some students, for others, math can inhibit great dreams. Mathematics is well recognized as the academic subject area that is the biggest barrier to students' access to higher education as well as completion. That's Carolyn Landell, the managing director of the Dana Center at the University of Texas and an expert on math and science education. So it's a huge problem and is just an enormous equity barrier to students really uh, Uh, getting an education beyond high school and getting access to uh, jobs in the workforce that have potential for mobility. She says that in our community college system, more than 60 percent of students can't qualify for entry-level college math. So they're being placed in a developmental set of sequences uh, that are intended, that were designed and intended to give them an opportunity to get their skills up But unfortunately, many of those students get enrolled in those um, pre-college course sequences and never make their way out of them. So the 60% of kids who enroll in them, uh, few of them make it through that first year of, of math and even fewer still ever than complete a degree because that particular course sequence is ultimately a barrier. Landell says math is the number one subject area stopping community college students from getting a degree. And it's not just a degree that they're losing. So they're accumulating debt and time toward a degree. And this particular content area ends up being a barrier. And and they uh, have spent time and resources, both of which are limited for many of these students, uh, and never actually earn their degree at the end. Over the past few years, Landell has been part of a movement for change, partially because the remedial courses weren't working. In fact, slowing kids down and pulling them back was less successful than a more fast-paced plan. The other part has been to say, let's look at math in a new way. Uh, Historically, we've all kind of had the algebraically intensive math as the model. You know, algebra one, geometry, pre-calc, that kind of path. Well, if you look at the workforce today, mathematics looks different in different kinds of work contexts. Statistics and statistical reasoning are a really fundamental way of thinking mathematically and numerically and quantitatively in fields like psychology and nursing and journalism, right? So pre-calc and calc might not be the right or relevant math for kids who are pursuing that, but yet that's been the default path as rigor and college ready. Carolyn Landell is the managing director of the Dana Center at the University of Texas. She works on a movement called Math Pathways, meant to stop math from being the prime academic barrier to college degrees. You can read more about it at our website, innovationhub.org. There, we will also have a link to our original story about the spread of extracurricular math programs in high school and elementary school. 